0: Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Whenever I want you, all I have to do is dream, dream, dream about listening to the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank the Beverly Brothers, Bowen Blake. For writing that song about their favorite podcast stick to wrestling where if you give us 60 minutes perhaps indeed we'll give you a wicked good podcast i want to start by saying we lost someone a good friend of mine john gallagher passed away probably be about two or three weeks from the the time this podcast came out i knew of his passing before the last show where we recorded and it's not that I forgot to mention that John had passed. I just didn't put two and two together. Like, okay, I have this platform to honor John, and he deserves it. I mean, he, he was responsible for a 1988 convention in Memphis, Tennessee, where I met a lot of people that I am still friends with today, a lot of people who have been guests on the show off the top of my head, Jamie Ward, Randy Smith, Ron Lemieux. And there's even more than that. I apologize to whoever I'm forgetting. But, uh, John, you will be missed. You, he was a great guy. And very sorry that he passed. Also, and I'm going to bring on our guest right now, David Taub. Thank you for coming on. Please tell us a little bit about yourself before we get rolling.
1: Hey, thanks so much, John. I've been a lifelong wrestling fan. Grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area along with Lou, your producer, Lou Kippelman. And eventually went to University of Michigan. Back to the Bay Area. Now I'm living in Fresno where I work as a journalist for an online newspaper. But fortunately, uh, my publishers say if I want to go publish a story on wrestling history, especially Fresno wrestling history, on occasion, they give me the green light. So on occasion, I get to publish stories, do a lot of fun doing some research, talking to some people who still have the institutional memory of wrestling. And you kind of realize that every city has a wrestling history. May not always have a pro sports wrestling or pro sports history. They always have a wrestling history, and I just love writing about that. And you and I used to be tape
0: traders. Yeah, you had a very specific function. I didn't realize it was you, but during the Monday Night Wars, I mean, well, you recorded more than this, but it started with, okay, I can only watch and record one show, so I kind of passed the baton to you where you recorded Nitro for me, and then you recorded a few other shows, and I would sit there like skipping through that tape, so thank you for that.
1: Yeah, I was uh, in Detroit there. Uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan at the time at U of M. So Detroit market had pro had worldwide. So saved all of those for you. And I think I said out of every 50 matches there, they may have been one worth saving.
0: I definitely remember those days. I would go through about six hours of footage and keep maybe 15, 20 minutes of it. That's how bad WCW was to me. And I just got to the point where I think it was early 1998 or mid 1998. I watch WCW. I'm like, I hate this. It does nothing but get me angry. Why do I watch it? I'm not Dave Meltzer. I'm not Wade Keller. I don't have to do it. Goodbye, WCW. Kind of feel the same way with today's product. Um, I don't mind. You know what? I say this. I don't watch Raw or SmackDown anymore. I watch the monthly specials on, well, now Peacock Network. I like them, but that satisfies my need.
1: I'm more of a fan of the old school, so when I can find full episodes, especially if they're posted week after week, even if they're 20, 30 years ago, I prefer that stuff, the modern product. But I think a lot lot of the audience might say the same.
0: I was going to say that's kind of my audience, and I I agree with you 100%. It was way better back in the day. Uh, I want to encourage everyone to start with to follow the show. On Facebook, we have the Stick to Wrestling Facebook group. Go ahead and join it. I'm going to give you two really good reasons to join it. We had a really interesting conversation there, I thought. One of the people in the group said that he watched uh, a shoot interview with Dusty Rhodes, uh, rest in peace, Dusty, where Dusty claimed he made $800,000 in one year in the WWF. And And my immediate response was, I don't think he made half that. OK, in 89, he came in middle of the year. So it couldn't have been 89 and 1990 business was down. And then I think of it, I'm like, well, maybe it was for closer to 400. I, I could believe that. And I thought about it more. I'm like, OK, in 1996, Kevin Nash got an offer from WCW for $750,000 a year. And Scott Hall got $550,000 a year. And the, the, the salary scale in wrestling was shattered. No one could believe that they were dishing out that kind of money. I mean, my understanding was, and I know business was down mid-90s, but the top paid guys in the WWF getting like 250000 300000 and Bischoff comes along and more than doubles that to lure these guys to WCW. And Bischoff, to his credit, I thought came across as, he said something I thought was really smart. He's like, okay, Kevin Nash makes fifteen thousand dollars a week. There are plenty of actors and actresses on primetime networks, cable networks, who make fifteen thousand dollars an episode. And I thought that was a an interesting out of the box way of looking at things that Eric had. David, do you want to chime in on this?
1: Uh, you know, I don't know. He made that much in what he considers uh, a year. Maybe it's from that June '89 period to June '90. Possibly, I mean, I know he. I'll defer to you, but did he headline shows? The B shows or C shows? Because possible that if he's headlining shows and he's the main event, he could get that kind of money.
0: He was the main event beginning in middle of 1990 on the B shows. Okay, he he had a, a program with Randy Savage, and they were doing the you know Dusty Rhodes and Juanita. What what's her name? Sapphire Sapphire thank you I know her real name Juanita Wright I don't know the name they called her on tv all the time versus uh Savage and Sherry they had the tag teams and they had the singles but my understanding was guys in that spot just didn't make giant money I don't know but I I, maybe it was 400,000 I don't think it was 800,000 that's like a little down from Hogan money
1: well, we do know that wrestlers tend to exaggerate a lot and have faulty memories. So I tend to agree with you probably not 800,000, but probably more than the average person. I think more than you'd expect dusty Rhodes in the eighty nine ninety era that you'd think you'd make, you probably made a little bit more, but 800,000, it does sound a little higher.
0: No, it's for that era. I don't, I don't think anyone outside of Hulk Hogan was making quite that much money. Another reason to follow us on Facebook last week. A few weeks ago, I should say, we had a guest on and he mentioned a gentleman by name. I'm not going to mention his name, but the guy goes on another message board, which will never be mentioned again. And he says, the topic, John McAdams podcast, I was mentioned in it and he ignored it entirely. Why? Because for some weird reason, he hates me. This is what happens when you get a small pocket of fame. He hate you? Is that Rod Smart? (laughs) Oh, <laughs> he's not that smart. Uh, he, I, oh, he hate me on that Jersey. That was so so awesome. But yeah, we, we had a little fun with that. So once again, if you're not in the group, you definitely want to join it. And one other thing I want to go over from last week's show, I learned over the past seven days that the mud match between Missy Hyatt and sunshine at Texas stadium, 1986 was indeed the last match on the show, as, as Tabe pointed out. It either had to be first or last, and it turns out it was last. And in a way, that's a good thing. If that's something you just didn't want a part of, like you can just leave the stadium. And David, you have some information on this.
1: Right, you mentioned last week that it was never televised, but I distinctly remember clips of the show in something like either Entertainment Tonight or George Michael's Sports Machine and I don't think it was about the match itself it as more of a general pro wrestling feature. And that clip was part of the feature. So I remember, you know, Missy's all muddy and getting all exasperated as she's being uh, walking away from the ring. So I know that there is at least a brief clip of that somewhere on one of these anthology type shows.
0: Okay. And that makes sense that you world-class was saying, you know, we're, not recording this, we're not televising this, if you want to see it, come on down, but these are different cameras, which, and that gives a, a good publicity for a world-class championship wrestling.
1: That's true. Uh, you know, I think Entertainment Tonight in the 80s, they occasionally do wrestling features, and I, I saw one from 1988, so how hot the WWF was, and they actually had Mean Gene do a, a specific event center promo, So oh, Entertainment Tonight is covering the WWF, and that was the lead of the piece and uh, they had their own Entertainment Tonight interviews with these WWF stars like Rick Rude and Million Dollar Man, Whole character, and a whole feature on Hulk Hogan. So, yeah, these entertainment shows uh, from the 80s and some of them are still around today. Yeah, they did do these wrestling features once in a while, maybe once a year, probably during Sweep's period. Just how hot wrestling is, even though maybe it was at actually a technically a downturn from its peak. But, uh, you know, if it's on Entertainment Tonight, you know that you're the big time.
0: They had an episode of, what is it, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Ted DiBiase. Ladies and gentlemen, search that on YouTube. I don't know if it's out there, but it is one of the best segments I've ever seen.
1: Total classic. Ted DiBiase in full character, and when he gives his dog champagne, but not Robin Leach. Classic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was so filmed,
1: classic. I think they filmed that at uh, that was Vince McMahon's house where they filmed it out, but... You know, Robin Lee, that show was just total, total epitome of the 80s. You know, Even the title, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, you know, I think that show was a complete work, but still fun, especially when it features, and I believe Randy Savage was also featured in one episode. So, uh, you know, the WWF, mainstream everywhere.
0: They really, I mean, you would, in the early 80s, you would never ever, ever see something like that on a television show, and it was such. It was so different seeing, you know, the the WWF stars and occasionally a guy like Ric Flair, like in the spotlight, like in the mainstream media. It was so different.
1: And I'm thinking, you know, who are the biggest stars to cross over to mainstream media, to general pop culture, at least in the mid 80s period? My list are Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Roddy Piper, Andre the Giant, George the Animal Steel, my top five crossover whether just a reference in a regular newscast or another sportscast or people imitating is those five guys i think crossed over the most because the wwf exposure because those characters were just so unique and with all the focus on randy savage the last couple weeks especially with that a and e biography was there a more imitated wrestler anywhere the mainstream the playground at your workplace at the water cooler than randy savage
0: i i doubt it i actually would put bobby heen in the head of george the animal steel
1: i don't know bob costas whenever he did talk about wrestling he always mentioned george Steele because of you know his hairy body look he has hair everywhere except on the top of his head and i think bob costas that was his go-to mention whenever wrestling you know in a baseball broadcast or nfl live
0: Yeah, we're gonna have a, a bob costas show on and <laughs> at some point he did a really interesting interview about 20 years ago with Vince McMahon and it went about as every bit as sideways as the Ole Anderson, Dave Melter interview. So we'll, we'll be having that at some point, David, you wrote an article. Uh, let me see this, this year. Wow. I thought it was going to be further back. The Fresno punch that cost the macho man, $6,000 and if I may It reads, it should have been just another night for wrestling Hall of Famer Randy Macho Man Savage when he stepped into the ring at Fresno's Celant Arena 35 years ago. Known for his intensity, the Macho Man was headed down to defend the Intercontinental Championship on April 30th, 1986. His opponent was Tito Santana. And let me see. Using brown-breaking aerial tactics, superior brawling, and a tinge of cheating, Savage was used to trading fists with his opponents. But then we go down, and, okay, the lovely Elizabeth, a beautiful demure woman, accompanied Macho Man to the ring. She was cast as the subject of verbal abuse and jealousy of Macho Man Randy Savage. And let me see. When a rude fan drew the ire of Macho Man Savage, he attempted to retaliate. Unfortunately, his punch missed his intended target and hit a 14-year-old girl. Our Barbara Palacios. yes. I can only imagine and we we don't need to speculate what someone would have had to yell to Randy Savage to get his attention regardless and to make him lash out like that.
1: Now there were two alternate things, uh, ideas of what happened and what drew the watchman either. It was the verbal abuse either to him or more likely to Elizabeth, or as, uh, some remember somebody tried to throw a Coke and it hit either Savage or Elizabeth. And that's what drew desire. But, you know, seeing all these features, And what we know about the Macho Man, the guy was high strung. At least he had everybody believing he was high strung. So it didn't sound like he took much to really tick off the Macho Man. I'm surprised that stuff like this didn't happen more often. The guy guy talked about living his gimmick.
0: Well, here's the thing. I mean, Savage by this point was a veteran in the sport. He'd been wrestling for at least 10 years. And you hear it every night to the point where you just don't hear it. It's like living near the train tracks. You don't hear the train anymore at some point. True, That's a good point.
1: I mean, you know, he's been doing this night in, night out, especially in the WWF for over a year, or just about a year at that point. So, you know, what made Fresno different than all those other nights? I guess somebody said something really wrong, or it could have been the idea that he somebody a fan spoke, which would be a little different. I think that'd be going on. On the normal fan behavior, but either way, Macho Man decided to retaliate, and when he threw that punch, uh, either the intended target ducked or Savage missed, and he popped a fourteen-year-old girl in the face, and that led to some a lot of trouble later on.
0: Yes, Um, and you know, Randy Savage. People say, well, he wasn't the biggest wrestler out there. You know, he he's been called a little bit small. I mean, we're comparing him. To Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage was a big, big guy. If you saw him walking down the street, you would notice him. If there's one thing, you know, I, I've, I've said it on the show before. If you think these guys look big on TV, you should see them up close in real life. And like, you know, a real life scenario, like in a restaurant or something.
1: Well, I think that 86 to 88 period, he's probably at his physicality. Muscles upon muscles. Uh, and just the way he just outfit, you know, the, the shades do rag shirts with the ripped sleeves guy looked massive the the leather the the tassels i mean he just looked scary whether he'd be a wrestler or not and the fact that his gimmick his character and what many say his real life attitude that he's this wound up guy this high-strung guy that he really was jealous if anybody cast their eyes on elizabeth and allegedly used you know physically not physically but verbally abused her you know hit her in the closet allowed only Pat Patterson. To uh, you know, I think maybe the stories are a little better than reality, but either way, people believe this character. And I think that's why the Macho Man was so legendary. So hall of fame, like, cause he was unlike anybody who's wrestling at that time. Sure. You know, you had the big muscle bound guys, but they didn't come off the top rope. They didn't do the ax handle from the top, all the way to the bottom of the floor. And is his voice? Like I said, I think it's probably the most imitated voice in wrestling. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> who doesn't have their who doesn't have their own version of the Macho Man imitation? So you know, the fact that this is probably the only, well, or at least I'd say the most well-known incident that Randy Savage got into it with fans, but also the legendary stories him getting into it with Bill Dundee or the police at the uh, Waffle House and the police dog. So you know Savage has a history of volatility when it comes to extracurriculars.
0: Oh, yeah. And Randy Randy grew up wrestling in the ICW territory where, you know, you you had to be crazy to survive.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, these small towns, I know they were based out of Lexington, but you, know, you had all these other small towns in Kentucky and in Illinois and the other area. Uh, so you're not drawing much, and it's amazing that they lasted uh, four years before kind of gave up, but at least they cashed in on the Savage Lawler feud in 84. You know, and I was just doing a little research, taking a look at the uh, newspapers from Lexington, uh, Kentucky at that time, where they had the big match in the March of 84. And it was unusual the newspaper would give coverage other than the ad of the monthly show. But the Lexington paper, they covered it you know, before. They had a, a mention the day of. They had a, a mention of the results afterward. So, young know, people believe that Savage Lawler feud because of that savage character. So they really believe he was crazy. They really believed that anything could happen with him. And that one night in Fresno, 35 years ago, it did happen where he accidentally, he accidentally hit a 14 year old girl.
0: Uh, she said she was knocked out cold, her two front teeth were knocked out and she suffered a concussion. Yikes. Yeah.
1: And even to this day, I found her when I wanted to do this story. I realized the timing of it and I wanted to do it for 35 years. And, uh, you know, one of our news research database tools to find a number for somebody with that name, Barbara Palace, And I found a number, uh, went straight to voicemail, and she actually called me back about a couple of days later. The phone number was actually her son's, but thankfully her son passed on the message to her. And she, yeah, she's still living in Fresno. Uh, you know, despite that incident, she went on to have a normal life, a, you know, wife, mother working. Uh, and she gladly and freely talked about the incident. Give her side of the story, which was interesting because her dad, or her stepdad more technically, was a security guard at the Salmon Arena. So he knew the wrestlers and she would bring uh, Barbara to the show. So she was a regular. WWF was running in that era. They were running about every month in Fresno. So wrestling in Fresno was pretty hot at that time. And the funny thing is, you know, she knew Jesse Ventura. Well, he was uh, became friends with her dad. So they went out to dinner. Captain Lou Albano actually went to their house once to share a six-pack. I find I, I find that story really hard to believe, though. I really think Lou Albano stopped at a six-pack? Yeah.
0: <laughs> that's an excellent point. Wow, I had you know what? I had no idea that. I mean, a security guard such as her dad would have such close relationships with the wrestlers. I mean, most of the time, these guys, you know, they they wanted to hit the town. Take a nap, get to the arena, do their match, and either go back to the hotel and and sleep or party.
1: Yeah, so you know, but I guess maybe that's the uh, lifestyle that her dad ran and you know ran in those circles. Either way, I mean, it's a pretty cool story. If uh, you're a wrestling fan, and you have these larger life characters get associate them, you know, freely like that, or at least uh, you know, away from the ring. And then you know, Jesse Ventura, you know, that would be a very interesting character to have dinner with, especially in the mid '80s. And hanging out with a bed at your house? That's a little scary, actually.
0: <laughs> it is a little bit scary. And, I mean, she's a 14-year-old girl. They, those, they, they're very small people at that age. And she says she still has problems with her right eye over this incident 35 years ago.
1: Yeah, well, that's, I guess, the power of the macho man. And what happened, you know, she was out cold. And the other fans around there were trying to fan her to give her some air and, Tito Santana either came to her on his way to the ring and told her, I'm going to win this match for you, or her, he either visited that or he visited her uh, in the hospital afterward. But, yeah, she was legitimately hurt, uh, and it led to a lawsuit. A couple months later, her family hired an attorney and filed a suit against Savage and Titan Sports. And he was served. He actually showed up at the arena, uh, you know, the next show, which would be November 86. He showed up, and he was served with a suit. And this kind of parallels another story, another famous out-of-the-ring incident in Fresno that also happened in 1986, about two months before the Savage incident, the famous Roddy Piper versus Fresno police story. It's gonna kind of mix and match and tell that story, but there's one thing where I thought is interesting that Savage still showed up, so he got served his papers, which meant the lawsuit was on. When Savage was, ha- or when Roddy Piper was having his problems, his were actual legal problems. He was actually arrested, and he no-showed a court, so when Roddy Piper was scheduled to return to Fresno, which would be December 1986, the sheriffs were there waiting for him with an arrest warrant. But Piper smartened up, and he, he never showed up, so it was all for naught. But Savage, I guess, is a little different. That it is a civil case. Savage was never arrested for this, so never had to worry about that aspect of the legal system. So he showed up, he got served, and uh, you know now it's, just, now it's a legal case.
0: You know, it's funny how these things used to work with wrestlers. About 30 years ago, Chris Champion got in trouble in Indiana and he had an arrest warrant out for him. Now that They did Evansville, Indiana once a week, so they just didn't use Chris Champion on the Evansville shows. Like, that would never happen today. And I think there's stories you hear
1: that if a wrestler got into some kind of legal trouble because they got into a physical altercation, that they would leave the territory rather than get served with the lawsuits. So, you know, when you all of a sudden you see a wrestler disappear, that could have been a reason why.
0: There's a story that that happened with Dr. D. David Schultz. That's why he never went back to Memphis because there was a warrant out or a, a, it wasn't a warrant. It was a, a lawsuit and he just never went back there. And when the fan found out that he was wrestling, no, you know what? Let me go back. A fan won a lawsuit against him, I think by default, and in order to avoid paying it, Schultz would go to a different territory. And when the fan read in a magazine that, hey, he's in this territory now, like, oh, no, they found me, and Schultz would go somewhere else.
1: Right. Well, you know, you have to be served with a lawsuit or you know, in order to make it official. Because it's just one thing to file a lawsuit in the courtroom. You actually have to serve them papers telling them you've been served, and... Uh, you know, there there are always ways around that if you can't find the person. But most easiest way to serve a lawsuit is to serve it in person. Yes. Uh, back to the Savage case. So a year later, nineteen eighty-seven, uh, the fall of eighty-seven, when they finally start taking depositions, and uh, so, you know, so Savage is back in town, presumably for a date in Fresno, and WWE hired him an attorney uh, by a Fresno attorney by the name of Marshall Hodkins. Which is notable because Marshall Hodgkins is one of the top defense attorneys back then, as he is still this day. So to see him being a civil defense attorney was a little unusual for him. But he said, I just did it because somebody gave me a call and he thought the case was interesting. You know, and he's one of those attorneys, like I think you know, every town has these number one defense attorneys where you know, some scum guy gets arrested. And you wonder who in the world would defend the scumbag. And, it's, you know, usually the most prominent defense attorney in town. So that's kind of what Marshall Hodgkins is in Fresno one of the top criminal defense attorneys, but in this case, he's defending the Macho Man and all he really was there was to be by his side for the deposition and the the attorney for the Talis family, you now they had their attorney and both these attorneys have great memories of the Macho Man showing up. You know, he showed up in, in full Macho Man gear you know, oh, the, no. tie-dye, the tie-dye. The tie-dye, flinges, the bandana. There was a little bit of discrepancy in the memory whether he had the Macho Man voice or he had his normal voice, but I'm guessing, you know, based on all the history we've seen with Randy Savage, I think that Macho Man voice kind of became his permanent voice, whether it really was or not. So the other interesting thing about this is the attorney who's representing the family, Suing Savage, made the unusual request of Randy Savage. Hey, uh, I have a friend who's a, you know, they have a special needs child. Would you be okay if uh, he came along, if you said hi to him, give him an autograph? Randy Savage, who by this time was a babyface, said that was no problem. He gave the kid 15 minutes, you know, in the middle of a deposition. You know, if they took a break in the deposition or before or after. But just to think that the attorney suing you makes that request and you honor that request. I think it shows a little bit of the character of the Macho Man that despite having this reputation of being a little, little wacko, he did have a passion for the fans, especially the special needs fans. That's a plus in his column.
0: And I mean, in the middle of a a deposition, well, I'm still getting over. Randy Savage in full Macho Man gear doing a, a deposition. And now I'm thinking about him doing a deposition in the Macho Man Randy Savage voice. That's over the top.
1: It is. Well, Titan was able to get out of it by saying, well, you know what? Randy Savage is an independent contractor, so we're not responsible for what he did. Eventually, Savage settles by 1988 for $6,000 to cover the 14-year-old Barbara, Pope, Barbara Palace's uh, medical bills. The attorney costs and i think when that was subtracted she was left with about three thousand dollars not much but it was put into a trust account until she turned 18 but barbara told me the story that by the time she turned 18 of course the money was gone her parents spent it on a ill-fated business venture so unfortunately uh, the only thing she got were the memories and the still having vision problems all these years later
0: I mean, that's not much money to begin with. I mean, three thousand three hundred and eighteen dollars is, is all she saw. That's probably about the equivalent of ten grand today, maybe a little bit less, like nine thousand. But I mean, yeah, you gotta feel sorry for the girl. She didn't see us it wasn't much to begin with, and she didn't see a cent of it. No, but you know what? She moved on with life.
1: For her, it was just something that happened to her. You know, she, she graduated, she she married, she had a family. She works, uh, she still does to this day. She still lives in Fresno. So it's just one of these stories you get to tell that it happened in life. You know, I don't think it negatively affected her life. Uh, Just something, just an interesting thing that happened to her. Probably make a great story at a party or in a newspaper column like mine.
0: There you go. No, I mean, you know, and like like you said, I mean, life's got to go on. Yeah, this happened to me when I was 14. I got hit, I lost a couple of teeth, but it it sounds like. She just like kept moving forward, and I'm ha- I'm happy for her.
1: Right now, funny things. I asked her, Do you, "Did you let your kids watch wrestling?" And she was reluctant. It's like, no, you know, it was a little too much. You know, she had boys, and uh, you know, no, I don't. They get too, they get them too agitated. But eventually, she had to relent because you know, her boys asked to go, and she finally said yes. So they they were allowed to watch wrestling again. And she took them to one of the shows, and uh, you know, she moved on with life and. I appreciate her talking to me because it really helped make the story of you know, what happens to these incidents. I say you hear these high-profile incidents of uh, wrestlers who've gotten fights with fans. I think Paul Orndorff got into a fight with an elderly fan in his Grand PA. and you know the 1997 riots that Shawn Michaels and the uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley caused. We wonder well, what happened to the plaintiffs. You know, were they just out? You know, for the money? Was there some legitimacy to it? I think with Barbara's case, there was legitimacy. She was legitimately injured. It was because of the Macho Man's actions, and they settled. You know, that's what court cases, that's what lawsuits are for—to make sure somebody's made whole. They have money they have to pay out for things like medical bills.
0: Exactly, and they deserve compensation for you know the pain and suffering caused. You brought up the Shawn Michaels Triple H riots. Those were, what, 95, 96? Uh, they Did were they, January
1: 97, yeah, like in the Little Rock and I think uh, one other town uh, in that same loop there.
0: Yeah, they, I just, know I know they had a major one, but like they were warning signs coming in. Like Every night, the fans would throw stuff at Shawn Michaels. Shawn Michaels would get on the mic and say, that's it, you've lost your main event, and he walked out. And... They had the, the major riot, I believe it was in Memphis. That sounds about right. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, what, how does the WWF not get on the phone with Sean, you know, Vince McMahon himself and say, Sean, could you please not do that thing where, you know, you get on the mic and say, you've lost your main event every night. Cause that's going to get crazy at one point.
1: I think it's just that wrestler's mentality that there's no such thing as too much heat. Uh, but apparently those nights in Little Rock and Memphis, there was, especially since he walked out and really upset the fans. But you got to wonder, you know, was it a security issue? And they're lucky that nobody got hurt, especially during that era. You know, you see fans throw trash in the ring on Nitro all the time and those incidents at the ECW Arena. Yep. I mean, it's just amazing that people didn't get more hurt and there weren't more litigation over it.
0: That was most definitely a Shawn Michaels thing. Sean was, he'll tell you himself, he was completely out of control at that point in his life. And thank you, you're right, the really big one wasn't it in Memphis, it was in Little Rock. Right.
1: But, you know, that goes par for the course. Now, the interesting parallel about what happened to Savage in Fresno in 1986 this came two months after what I like to call the most famous wrestling match in Fresno history. It was a handicap match, no falls, so they don't count. No disqualification, no rules. Who is Magnificent Morocco, Cowboy Bob Arden, and Roddy Piper versus the Fresno Police Department, and it was not televised.
0: <laughs> I actually heard a little bit about this story from the old Wrestling Eye magazine, which I think we're going to be talking about next week. You have access to more information because you're in Fresno. Could you please tell the entire story of what happened with Piper Orton and Morocco on this night in 1986 before you get that. I mean, those, those three had a reputation of being completely crazy together, but I, I will offer you the stage, sir. Appreciate that. This is February,
1: 1986. It was after the matches in the uh, selling arena. And usually the WWF and Fresno at that time, it'd be a, a midweek town. Now they came in that era about once a month. So it usually be a Tuesday or Wednesday nights. And after the matches, Piper, Orton, Morocco, they were hungry. They wanted to get something to eat. And, of course, the bar was closing down, which made them a little little upset at the famous Fresno Hoffman, which unfortunately no longer exists. And there was one fan at the end of the bar by the name of Nash Lera. Well, I don't know if a fan would be the right description. There was one person who was mouthing off at Piper, uh, not quite sure what was said. It was never really recorded. Piper told the story in one of those WWE Legends Roundtable shows. And, you know, Piper says, "Oh, well, you know, I was sitting next to him and he accidentally fell off the bar stool. Ha ha, <laughs> Piper. But, uh, yeah, they got to a fight. And uh, before the police came, Piper, Orton, and Morocco took off. And we're not quite sure what happened. But, but here's what we know between then and by the time they tried to check into their hotel late at night. All we know is the cars got stuck on the track, and they ditched the car uh, in probably not the most well-known or at least safest part of town. Uh, On a railroad track. On a railroad. This is a legend. Whether it's true or not, it's uh, certainly a good story. (laughs) But between my research and what was reported in the newspaper at the time, they ditched the car on the track. Just tried to check into the hotel. Uh, Apparently, Orton and Morocco were successful in checking in. Piper had problems with checking the hotel. I'm sure he was a little inebriated from his post-match activities. So he's getting to the cops. He gets arrested for what Piper says is vagrancy because he could not check into the hotel. What's most memorable about this incident is what happened to Bob Orton. Apparently, was already in his room sleeping, and uh, Bob Orton was apparently sleeping in the buff, as the legend goes. And hey, you know, Fresno even in February can be pretty warm, so. He, the cops either knock on his door or he hears the commotion going out in the lobby. He opens the door and somehow it locks behind him or I think his piper told the story his bathrobe or the sheet that he put around him got caught in the door and all of a sudden you have a naked and ornery Bob Orton in this hotel and the police eventually have to tase him which is the crazy story and the legend is tasers don't even work. Yep. now They try it and Bob Orton just you know Clicks off the, the taser clips, and yeah, he says, nope. Eventually, that situation calms down, and Bob Orton's not arrested, but Roddy Piper is. Go figure. And I think probably the most interesting thing, at least from a Fresno perspective about the story, is that there was a sergeant at the time who was on the case there. I do not believe he was the one who actually did the tasing, But this man, his name is Jerry Dyer, eventually he became police chief. Uh, he was a longtime police chief in Fresno after this incident, and currently today, in 2021, Jerry Dyer is the mayor of Fresno. So whenever I ask him about this, because uh, you know, as part of my day job, I, I cover City Hall at Fresno. And on occasion, I'll bring up Bob Orton, usually on the anniversary. And he'll always give a chuckle about his memories. But I think it's so interesting that police who are involved, one of them is now the leader of the town.
0: That story I heard a million years ago um, that the the cops were tasing a naked cowboy Bob Orton, and he just kind of laughed it off. I have heard from more than one wrestler that Bob Orton Jr. was the toughest guy in a tough guy business back in the 80s.
1: I think so. Can't have, have a tough guy to have a flop of hair like that. Mm-hmm. I think Bob Orton just wasn't the same when he got the haircut. And uh, I always liked him, you know, floppy hair Bob Orton. He just made him just give him that edge, give him that unique look. Once he got that haircut, he just looked like, you know, another guy in the WWF roster.
0: Especially after
1: he split with foot. I'm surprised that Orton Piper only had one TV match, and it was like a three minute match on uh, Saturday night's main event in the fall of '86. You know, like they didn't seem to have any of the house show matches that were televised in either MSG or Philadelphia or Boston. But I'm surprised that few didn't last longer because first of all because piper you know took off after wrestlemania for all those times and when he did return and probably a great uh, angle to build his return you know with the dueling shows between him and adrian adonis and bob orton turning on piper by being adrian adonis's bodyguard for his show it was mainly the piper versus adonis or piper versus morocco which is what you saw at house shows but you know piper versus orton Seemed like that's where all the heat was because they had the, you know, they were together for two years,
0: inseparable. I think at the problem was you you couldn't main. I think they wanted Piper as a main eventer. I, I know they wanted him as a main eventer. Something happened with Adonis in like you know right around the time of that angle where they sent him home, or I don't know. If, they definitely sent him home at one point.
1: Yeah, like right, right right, around there, right around the fall of 86, where he was, he was fired right after they aired all those angles mm-hmm. where Adonis just, just beat the tar out of Piper on the uh, set of Piper's pit. Uh, but, you know, Adrian Adonis seemed like he had a wild side uh, outside the ring. And, uh, you know, they hired him back eventually. But you know, I think Piper, what he wrestled Iron Sheik on one of those Saturday night's main events, and I believe that you have to imagine that was originally planned to be Adonis versus Piper said we get uh chic versus morales and actually or it was Sheik versus morales and hyper comes to the ring and sends morales packing and he he faces the Sheik instead i'd imagine that you know hyper adonis probably would have made one of those main event shows if adonis was still
0: there oh yeah they were definitely going i mean you look back in 86 and adrian adonis he was their lead heel in in 86 it was either he or savage and i think it was more adonis than savage and he had that ridiculous gimmick. And I mean, I've heard stories about how th- that all started. And Adrian, he w- he was so obese. And, and at the time, I was like, you know, how is the number one wrestling company in the world giving this guy so much airtime? I, I was an Adrian Adonis fan. Don't get me wrong, but just not with that gimmick. Yeah, and Adrian Adonis always had a very interesting body shape. Even for being a fat guy,
1: he just had a, a weird-looking belly. Yeah, weird-looking chest. And just not a normal fat guy belly. It was just something to behold, especially wearing those skinny pink trunks, just accentuated. I'm sure Vince McMahon, well, this is a Vince McMahon-Pat Patterson special, but ha-ha, look at the fat guy. But, uh, you know, of course, Adrian Adonis' his body, but why his wrestling type? He was still a, a master bump taker. He's was still a pretty good wrestler, even though his physique was pretty opposite of what most WWF guys had at the time.
0: I mean, I heard a long time ago that Adrian Adonis was just naturally a guy with a bad body. I mean, he was up here in 81 and 82, and he wasn't anywhere near as heavy as he was in 86. It's one of those things like, you know, when Adrian tried really hard, he still didn't look great. And then when he stopped trying, he hit the wall. But he was a really good wrestler, even when he was in the AWA in 87. Like he obviously he was he was right around like three hundred ninety, four hundred pounds, I'm guessing. And he could still work. He could still take really good bumps. Yeah, I think you might have to say he's probably one of the best bad body wrestlers of all time.
1: I think, you know, and I also wonder, let's say Adrian Donis does not die in uh, July of 1988. In a tragic car crash. I think you'd probably have a gimmick like Bash Booger or something. You know, if Mike Shaw can get a gimmick like Bastion Booger years later, I think that Vince McMahon has something for a bad body Adrian Adonis somewhere down the road.
0: I heard back before Adrian Adonis passed away that he had come to a verbal agreement with either Jim Crockett, Dusty Rhodes, or both, that he was going to come to the NWA once he lost enough weight and he was going to be back to the leather jacketed Adrian Adonis. They were not going to. He wanted to be adorable Adrian in the NWA he wanted that in the aWA um in 87 eighty eight and you know Crockett said no way and my understanding is that he was coming to the NWA after he lost some weight. I saw him in Japan in 88 he was losing weight, and just what happened to him was so sad
1: uh try in you know, all places you know in
0: you know, far away Canada was
1: it uh, you know the north, northeast section of Canada the, the Maritimes area yes. You know, they're talking about wrestling territories of last resorts.
0: Oh, yeah. And the story I heard was that they're driving late at night, late at night, meaning about 11 p.m., and the sun is going down. This is what a weird part of the world they're in, okay? And supposedly one of the Kelly brothers was driving, and a moose got in the way, you know, in order to not hit a moose, and these things are big, you don't want to hit them, he swerved off the car, the van went off a cliff, and that was the end of Adrian Adonis. Sad ending.
1: Tragic. You know, Dave McKinley and the uh, was it both the Kelly Twins or one of the Kelly Twins who died in that accident?
0: I believe one of them died. One of, I believe one of them survived.
1: Yeah. Now, to kind of come full circle on the show, uh, Adrian Donis is Keith Frank, originally from Bakersfield, California, which is about an hour 45 minutes south of Fresno. And they reported his death on Entertainment Tonight. I think that's where I learned of how Adrian Donis died by watching a Sigma on, on Entertainment Tonight, and I think they interviewed his wife for that.
0: I do remember that. I do remember them interviewing her. Name was B, as a matter of fact, B E A.
1: Right. So, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, talking about characters you cross over. You know, you wouldn't think that Adrian Donis would be one of those characters that Entertainment Tonight would cover, but you did.
0: Yeah, I remember when Adrian Adonis first came to the WWF in 1981 and he'd always been this guy you know, from New York and as soon as he opened his mouth, I was like, okay, this guy is not from New York and it turned out he was from Bakersfield.
1: Right, and the whole leather thing. and you know, He was the first world champion for that uh, Southwest uh, wrestling promotion that went out of San Antonio when they were kind of breaking away and establishing their own world champion. He was the first world championship and it says provided the belt for that which nobody took seriously he had absolutely no credibility and when he left which wasn't too long after that you know that title kind of just disappeared and so did southwest wrestling for that matter
0: southwest that's a that's a long story but i mean they had this 16 man tournament in houston so they're invading paul bosch's space and they had you know they're bringing in big stars for the tournament they had i believe the main event or Outside of the tournament, they had Gino Hernandez versus Tully Blanchard with Ernie Shavers as referee, and then they had the 16, I think it was 16-man tournament. They flew in Terry Funk, Adrian Adonis was part of it, Bob Orton Jr. was part of it, and I heard recently it drew 400 people.
1: Yeah, what were they thinking with that expense? Who gave them the idea that, yes, this is going to draw in somebody else's territory? And a couple of years later, world-class invaded San Antonio. So now, San, the city of San Antonio, which is a similar size to the city of Fresno, you can afford two promotions in a war. And, uh, you know, I want to talk a little bit about Fresno's wrestling history. And it somewhat mirrors the San Francisco territory as well. But well, Fresno's had a, a rich wrestling history. I'm sure that everybody's hometown has. Fresno had weekly wrestling for nearly 40 years from uh, the 1930s to the uh, mid 60s. And it was a promotion that was officially called the disabled veterans American veterans they were the nominal promoters and they had some you know matchmakers mostly guys who also did boxing matches in Fresno they would be the matchmakers promoters in Fresno and the daV well, they were a weekly town every Saturday nights and they had most of the talent you know from the fix starting in the 50s and 60s provided by uh, Joe Malkowitz, who was the promoter in San Francisco when Roy Shire came to San Francisco in 1961. He had a, like I said, a mirrored San Francisco. Another promoter by the name of Bob Hill, who's from Southern California, got a, wrestler, a promoter's license for Fresno. And the DAV vehemently objected. It was the California State Athletic Commission who provided these licenses. The DAV said, no, this is going to hurt us. You can't have two wrestling promotions, especially if one has TV. That's going to kill us. But the California Athletic Commission granted the promotion anyways, and I believe Roy Shire... He wasn't the named promoter, but I think he was the partner with Bob Hill there. And by the summer of 1961, they had a live weekly TV show that started off at Tuesdays at 1030 at nights. Yeah. 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 Well, it, it worked. I mean, eventually it was a couple months later, it was moved to uh, Wednesdays at 630. But they had TV. They were the second promotion there. The uh, disabled American veterans promotion did not have TV because, you know, they're under the. Uh, It's saying with Joe Malkowitz in San Francisco. Oh, we can't give away our product free on TV. That's not going to work. And within a year, Joe Malthowitz's promotion in San Francisco disappeared. And in 1962, the DAV promotion, uh, they finally got TV weekly Saturday night slot in the station that no longer exists. They aired part of their Saturday night show live 10 o'clock on Saturdays. But uh, that was March 1962, nearly about 10 months after the other side the San Francisco-based Roy Shire-based promotion came to Fresno. And of course, on one side you have uh, Roy Shire for you know, promoting, and you have Ray Stevens, who's main eventing just about every show. And they clearly, just like in San Francisco, Roy Shire clearly outclassed Joe Malkowitz. Same thing in Fresno. And by mid-1962, there was only one promotion left: the Shire-affiliated promotion. And they had that t- live TV show in Fresno for about ten years before I think importing just the show they taped in Sacramento when Roy Shire got kicked out of the studio in San Francisco. And uh, it was a Tad Patterson supplanted Ray Stevens as a star, just like he did in in San Francisco. And eventually in the late seventies, when Roy Shire stopped promoting uh, towns beyond the cow palace, uh, the Fresno promotion picked up and became booking LA stars. And they lasted until about 1981 where they went dark. And then the WWF came to town in 84 and Fresno has been a WWF town ever since.
0: I used to get magazines. It was like not the after magazines, not the ring. It was like the big book of wrestling. And these were, these were pretty far down the food chain. And I remember this specific magazine having photos from the matches in Fresno. I'm, who are some of the bigger stars like in the mid to late 70s in, in Fresno?
1: It'd be those who mirror in San Francisco. So uh, race Pat Patterson, would be number one, race Stevens, uh, you know, he would still come back to California and he'd make the Fresno loop. And now while Fresno in the Roy Shires era, wasn't a weekly town, maybe every three to four weeks. And you know, sometimes right now, history is a little lost because they didn't have a weekly advertisement in the paper. And I think that's the best way to preserve what happened then, and try to do the research. Unfortunately, they didn't advertise our weekly towns in the paper. They just did it all off TV. And, and another interesting thing: uh, being in California, got the Spanish stations. The, uh, I guess what would be the SIN, which eventually became Univision. They broadcast the weekly Olympic Auditorium shows, which uh, you know they do the Spanish version. So you had uh, kind of two wrestling shows in Fresno, even though. They weren't competing, the you know, say, the L.A. and the San Francisco promotions. It was only the Roy Shire San Francisco promotion that was actively voting in Fresno at the time until about the late 70s when Shire stopped. So just, you know, the cards, the stars you saw in the Cal Palace It also come down to Fresno, uh, Modesto, Sacramento, Stockton. So that was kind of the loop where some towns were weekly and some towns were more monthly.
0: Okay, so Fresno was getting a show. and It's a pretty major market. They were getting a show about every four weeks, you're saying?
1: Yeah, so it was about a monthly town. I mean, you know, same thing with the Cow Palace, and just, that's the way Shire ran it. And then when Shire kind of gave up in the late 70s uh, anything beyond the Cow Palace, a boxing promoter by the name of Pat DeFuria started picking up the mantle. By this time, uh, they weren't doing selling and anymore. They were doing something, a, a local theater called the Wilson Theater, where they're having weekly shows about 78, 79. And I recently wrote about how in 1981, there was an Andre the Giant, Versus Roddy Piper show, one week in January of '81, followed up by a NWA World Title defense by Harley Race versus Chavo Guerrero. So in '81, you're still getting these major names, but the top card there be, they'd be drawing a thousand. Oh, so yeah, so you know, Race versus uh, you know, Guerrero and Piper and Andre drew about a thousand each, and that was considered a good crowd compared to the average crowd at that time. Because those those LA rosters in the late '70s, early '80s was pretty scants.
0: Yeah, it was like Chavo Guerrero kind of stayed, but like all the other big names just, you know, moved on. I mean, the, the Los Angeles and San Francisco promotions got lots of coverage in the magazines, you know, back mid 70s. And in late 70s, I noticed it was kind of going away. And by 80 81, I was like, okay, where are these promotions now? Yeah, just for example,
1: uh, the 1980 card in uh, February, your main event was the Evans brothers versus Alma Madrill and chief running Hill and followed it underneath by shallow Guerrero versus great Goliath and cowboy Tom Pritchard, the T his name versus Victor Rivera and Mondo Guerrero versus the hood. That's the talent you were seeing in LA and uh, in the Fresno loop in the late seventies and early eighties. And you wonder why that promotion didn't last much longer.
0: Uh, no. no. So what happened? Like when they stopped promoting the Los Angeles promotion went under, like spring 1981,
1: am I close? I believe so, at least. I thought they lasted all the way to 83 when uh, LaBelle sold out to McMahon, or at least kind of made a deal that I'm going to be the WWF local promotion. But, you know, the trail of, of cards and wrestling in Fresno kind of dies off around 1981 or so. And either they just didn't have the ad budget for for newspaper ads or uh, you know, there was no more local wrestling in Fresno. There's still TV shows, and presumably, probably the LA TV show was broadcast in Fresno. But in 1984, Fresno was one of those markets that WWF picked up and did really well in. And uh, you know, they really peaked in '85, and Hulk Hogan came to town in '86. He set a record for attendance in Selling an Arena, and of course, uh, that has been a WWF town and a strong one since then. And that's where Piper, or I'm sorry, Austin and Tyson. Had their first confrontation in Fresno. There have been a couple of Royal Rumbles in Fresno, including the one where the man blew out his quads. Well, Fresno yeah. has its wrestling
0: history. Excellent. Um I would let me so was there like no wrestling in Fresno at all after 1981, or were they still running on fumes and going up there?
1: You know, I'm still researching, trying to find that out. Okay. Well, you know, the, the the trail, at least in the newspaper, kind of falls off. Yeah, and all I know is you know they still had a weekly TV show, but I'm presuming that was the Olympic show out of, out of L.A. So it could have been the AWA show, which was promoting in San Francisco at the time. But, but there's definitely, if there were live shows, they weren't promoting that fact in the newspaper. And I'm talking to some of my folks in Fresno who who were around then, and they you know, it had to wait till the WWF came to town before things picked up again.
0: It it always kind of fascinated me how in the early '80s. There were major markets with no major league wrestling. It was strictly minor league Los Angeles, San Francisco, Fresno, Phoenix. And then, you know, Vince McMahon started, you know, put the guys on the plane and started sending them out west.
1: Well, that's what happens when you have TV stars. And I think that's the lesson when you look at California wrestling. That's why Roy Shire really was able to be the invading promotion in San Francisco, Fresno, and in other cities in Sacramento. These are all. You know, major markets in California and he's able to get by because he believed in TV while the other old-school promotion did not. And he survived, and they didn't. It kind of reminds me of the argument where uh, you know, baseball teams, Major League Baseball teams, oh no, we can't televise home games, it's going to affect the gates. The same argument was made by the wrestling promotions that were getting invaded. Whether it was Joe Malkowitz in San Francisco or the local Fresno promotion, and they're the ones who are Relegated to the history books and by the way, Rock rims history book of when it was big time is a great resource for California wrestling history.
0: One thing I want to ask you, because we're of course we're rapidly running out of time. This is always the fastest hour of my week. Do you have any what's the word I'm looking for? Stories or anecdotes? Uh what was it like dealing with the California State Athletic Commission? Because I know they can be a nightmare out here. It could, but when it came to granting these licenses for towns that already have licenses, they kind of took a
1: laissez-faire approach. They didn't buy the argument. The existing promotions tried to make the argument that if you uh, ran to second promotion, a second license, then we're, we're toast. And the Athletic Commission said, yeah, and here's a story I found from 1961, which is the second Fresno wrestling promotion gets approval. The application of Bob Hill uh, has been approved by the California Athletic Commission despite opposition by organization already promoting match shows in that city. Hill, the promoter of the Fresno Athletic Club, said Tuesday night shows will be televised. The uh, DAV chapter and its matchmaker, Al Dermer, represented by attorney George Zenovich, who later became a politician in California, protested the awarding of the permit and the awarding by Hill by the commission, but voted unanimously to grant the franchise. They also granted uh, promotions or wrestling licenses for Stockton and Sacramento and Pleasanton, which is a city in the Bay Area, the commission said it could not disapprove the licenses applications simply because the wrestling clubs would compete with DAV sponsored events. So they really took a laissez faire business attitude, which would be nice if the California legislature kinda of went back to that. But hey.
0: i, I, I just never understood. I, I saw I saw an interview with uh, Don Owen, the Portland promoter who was saying, you know, if we, if we have a second promotion in Portland, it's it's, it's going to, you know, there's going to be too much wrestling out there. It's like, you know, Don, that's not the problem of the Oregon State Athletic Commission. That's your problem. That's like, you know, a Burger King saying, you know, hey, this will hurt our business if, if you build a McDonald's across the street. That's not the government's problem. That's open market, free market. Well, you hear the stories in Louisiana
1: and their athletic commission, and uh, they only had a, a one license per town deal until... WWF came and threatened legal action and they were able to move in in the mid-80s in Louisiana because of that. I think what you're thinking of is the overregulation of the Athletic Commission. I heard these stories in the 70s, especially with Buddy Rose in San Francisco and especially in San Jose where he got into a verbal argument with a fan and Buddy Rose gets fined for that. You know Whether that was legit or not, uh, I don't know, but at least the newspapers reported that Buddy Rose gets fined by the California State Athletic Commission for verbal abuse of a fan, and Buddy Rose refused to pay that fine, and he got suspended. Now, whether that was legitimate or not, or whether that's just part of the storyline because Buddy was leaving, either way, you know, you hear these stories that the, that's what the California Athletic Commission did, is silly fines, and especially the... Did you ever hear about the Mr. Fuji incident in the Cow Palace? No, tell us about it. So, Fuji, for whatever reason with no show, this one card where he's building the main event against Pat Patterson. I'm saying this might be 77-78. It's a story that's well told in the When It Was Big Time book. But I heard about it before as well, where instead of Fuji coming to the ring, it was another masked wrestler of Japanese descent, which I believe is Toru Tanaka who took his place. But they didn't say, oh, well, that's Toro Tanaka, that's Mr. Fuji. But he's still wearing the mask, because Pat Patterson, on part, sometimes Part of his gimmick, he would wear a mask, you know, is Pat Patterson hiding something in his, in his mask or not. So you had both these wrestlers who are well-known. You know, they're not trying to hide who they are. Yet They are trying to hide who they are wearing masks. And the fans could tell right away that was not Mr. Fuji. Although, those say, different body type.
0: Like I was going to say. Tattoos.
1: Yeah. Fuji had tattoos. This guy didn't. So uh, fans complained. Wrestling, uh, the athletic commission caught on to it. And, of course, they suspend Mr. Fuji. Uh, it was kind of clear why he no-showed the date in the first place, And, of course, they find Roy Shire. Roy Shire was able to get out of it a little bit because he said, I was fooled, too. I had no idea that wasn't Mr. Fuji. So he fooled me, too. I, you know, and- Oh, boy. <laughs> but that's what the Athletic Commission did. And I think that also kind of turned off fans. And that was one of the reasons why, in the late 70s, the Shire promotion in San Francisco started to slide. Uh, I thought it was I'll funny see- that. It's not as funny, that was an excuse that Shire made that he was fooled too. <laughs>
0: uh, I, I mean I can't imagine a wrestling fan not being able to tell the difference between P- Professor Toru Tanaka, who was built like a tank, and Mr. Fuji, who just wasn't. David, I wanna thank you for being on the show. You were a great guest. This has been an excellent episode.
1: Thank you. Uh, you know, I knew you were back in the tape trading days and I've a listener to your show and it's a pleasure to talk wrestling with you.
0: All of this Fresno talk has me dying to watch the 2005 Reggie Bush game, USC versus the Fresno State Bulldogs. And David, I want you to know, I'm going to impress you now, I know what the V on the Fresno State helmet means. It stands for support your local vineyards.
1: Almost. <laughs> ah, okay, what does it really say? V for the valley, for the San Joaquin Valley or the Central Valley, Kind to expand Fresno State uh, appeal just beyond Fresno.
0: I see. V is for value. All right. Well, I stand corrected, but at least I had an idea. At least I knew there was a V on the helmet. David, thank you again for being on. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank our producer, Lightning Lou Kippelman, for all the great work he does. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Stay safe and we'll see you next week. This concludes
1: our podcast day.